Welcome to the Purple Political Breakdown. I am glad you are here and I'm glad you are listening to today's podcast episode. My mission in each and every one of these episodes is to really focus on the solutions to some of the biggest questions and most controversial topics going on in our current society. I feel like most of these conversations are not truly being discussed in a more logical and respectful manner due to the political toxicity that goes on with both the left and the right, both the Democrats and the Republicans. In this podcast, I don't care about any of that. I am focused on the solutions. I'm focused on bridging gaps. If you want to join me on this journey, if you want to discuss some of the most important topics, if you are tired of the political toxicity and negativity from both sides, please support this channel, share the podcast, and go to my website, www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. I appreciate the support. I'll continue to make content and hopefully we can start bridging these gaps and focusing on real issues going on in our world. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Purple Political Breakdown, episode number 68. And today I'm your host, Rodell Lewis. We have an excellent conversation going about. This is my second or third time trying to interview. So that is uh, not great for me. But with that said, the conversation still should be fantastic as we plan to dive into the Latino community. This is an area we haven't touched upon um, at all, honestly, because I'm definitely not an expert and it doesn't touch to my personal experiences. But we have an excellent guest to talk about it, talk about potential solutions on helping the marginalized community, of course. And that person is Dr. Paul Rivera. So to kind of let you guys know a little bit that's going on with him, he is a catalyst for positive change with a multifaceted career spanning academia, diplomacy, international economics, and strategic coaching. Dr. Rivera is the co-founder of Be Act Change. His mission is to ignite profound growth and alignment within individuals and organizations globally. A professional facilitator and strategic planning expert, Dr. Rivera merges rigorous analysis with collaborative visioning and systematic methodologies. His transformative work has mobilized nearly a billion U.S. dollars, leaving a lasting imprint on communities worldwide. A seasoned globetrotter, first-generation American, and proud Latino, Dr. Rivera holds a Ph.D. in economics from the University of South California. So let's bring in our guest, Dr. Paul Rivera. How you doing? I am great. Thank you so much, Rodell. Thank you for that introduction. Really, really honored to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. I think the conversation we're about to be having is going to be very interesting. And like I said, this is going to be touching upon a area that I'm not as familiar with because of my personal experience and the kind of avenues that I go down to in the conversations that I be having. But it's a important conversation. Nonetheless, of course, uh, the Latino community is an important group in terms of America right now. And when it comes down to like the marginalized communities, probably the two forefronts, obviously the black community, and then of course the Latino community. So to kind of start it off with, um, I'm allow you to introduce yourself and what you're doing here on the podcast. And then we'll kind of get into a little bit more deeper questions on your character and um, kind of your perspective and, and your not qualifications, but I like the guests to know 
that when the solutions are coming out of your mouth, where you come from and how you're kind of relaying the solutions, we focus on solutions without political bias on this podcast. We have a lot of different types of individuals, and I'm sure they want to know you, uh, about you, of course. So with that said, floor is yours. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? That sounds great. Thanks so much. And I I mean, I, I'm sure plenty of your other guests have said so, but the the idea of having a venue where you can present solutions without political bias is something that I think is sorely, sorely missing in our world today. So it's it's really nice to to be in that in that space in that environment. So I'm Paul Rivera. I am a first generation American. So my my mom is Mexican. My dad is from El Salvador. Um, they met in the U.S. Um, so I you know that that that's a huge part of my upbringing. I didn't learn to speak English until I went to school. You know, and and growing up, my my entire community was the Latino community. You know, um, I know that I have gone a different path than a lot of Latinos have, you know? And um, so I became a professor of economics, um, which I loved. I, I'm, I think I'm, one of the things I miss most in my work and career now is not being able to interact with students as much, you know? So that that was really something that, that I really loved and I was super passionate about. Um, I'm a world traveler. I've been to about 112, 114 countries um, around the world and I love it. I love the travel because I go to talk to the people, right? I go to learn about people in their culture. I talk to anyone, anybody who, who likes to travel. I tell them, go and don't just stay in the resort. You know, don't just, um, don't just go and, and sort of isolate yourself, but do the best you can to immerse yourself in the culture. Talk to the taxi drivers. Taxi drivers everywhere in the world are a wealth of information and just amazing people. Um, my second career after I left academia, I went into international development. So I worked for a large international development agency um, around the world. I'm a specialist in strategic planning and economics. So that's that was sort of the bend of my work. You know, the government would basically give a certain amount of money, millions and millions of dollars most of the time uh, to a particular to create projects and activities in a particular country. And that that needed to have a strategic plan that went with it, right? So that's that's been traditionally my avenue in in um, in government and in international development. So, in in both of those things, both in my life, in my personal life, in my travels, in my work, every everything for me has has had a lens of of critical thinking. I come at everything from the lens of critical thinking. That, that's why I love economics because it makes you question assumptions. It makes you look at goals and what are the best ways to get there and all of that. More than anything, what I've seen, one is that everywhere people are the same. So Latinos are, you know, Latinos are a group of people with a particular culture. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that in many ways we're no different than everyone worldwide in some ways, you know, that that everyone has a commonality in that they want uh, a certain amount of comfort. They want a certain they want peace. They want uh, to know that their family is OK. And everyone also has a dream. And so the one thing that I think is really important that we don't talk about enough, whether it's the Latino community, the black community, the whatever immigrant community, especially in the United States, I think we don't talk about enough that everyone has a dream. You know, I've met I've met uh, fishermen in the Dominican Republic, 
who tell you, you know, that they have a dream and what they see as their purpose on the earth. Um, I've met uh, uh, nomadic herders in Africa, and they'll tell you the same thing. They have an understanding of why they're here, uh, what their purpose is, and how it is that that aligns to their life. And that's something that I think has really fallen out of, of our discourse on multiple levels. And, and for me, this is where the Latino thing kind of kicks in in some ways. Um, you know, growing up as the child of immigrants, I saw my parents, I saw my grandparents, I saw my aunts, my uncles, everyone in our community, and everyone was struggling. Everyone was struggling. Everyone was hustling. Everyone was trying to make it, you know, and some, some families did better than others. Um, some, some really fell behind in a lot of ways. And so, you know, you start asking, and I remember the first time I started asking these questions was actually when I was working on my dissertation. I was, you know, I was working on my dissertation in economics and I sat with my dad and I'd never had this conversation with my dad. And I said, dad, why did you leave El Salvador? What, what made you leave? You know, his family was, was relatively well off. Um, they, they were okay, you know, back then. And he, and my dad, my dad left El Salvador in the, in the late 1960s. So my family, you know, they've, we've been in the United States for a long time and he was still a relatively young man when he left. Um, and he said to me, I, I left because I felt like a failure there, which is really interesting. You know, that, there's a whole lot of deep psychology there, but his, frankly, his opportunities there were massive. Um, and he didn't feel like he could take advantage of them. And so as I started asking my dad, some of these other questions, um, I said, Dad, what, why did you, what did you want to do? What did you want to be when you grew up? You know, like, what was your dream? What was your thing, you know? And he said, I wanted to be an engineer. And if my dad, anybody who knows my dad, my dad is a magician with machines. My dad is the guy who can make anything that's broken fixed. And I mean, it, it's, it is, to me, he rises to the level of genius in that capacity. You know, but in his mind, he wanted to be an engineer. And it makes so much sense as soon as he said that, because my whole life, they pushed me to be an engineer. He wanted me to be an engineer, you know, and because that was his dream that never got realized. Okay. So why wasn't he able to realize it? I think if he'd stayed in, in, the, in El Salvador and, and, and really tried to make his life there, I think he probably could have been an engineer, but he left and he came to the United States and he was immediately drafted during the Vietnam era. And, you know, he became, he became a mechanic. And I don't, I don't think that he regrets that, but it's clear that there is a purpose. There's an underlying dream of his that didn't get realized. Okay. So as, as we started taking examples like this and thousands and thousands and thousands of them, what you find is that American immigrants come to the United States seeking the American dream. So a big part of what we talk about is the American dream. Um, you know, the American dream is this ideal. It's an ideal that if you have equal opportunity in a land of equal opportunity, the way in which you go about success is through hard work, right? If, if opportunity is truly equal, all I need to do to reach real success is to work hard. And that is beautiful, right? If you look actually in the Webster's Dictionary, the, the definition of the American dream says 
that the American dream is the ideal through which under equality of opportunity, all Americans have the opportunity to achieve their highest aspiration. And I think that that is something we need to really hone in on because that idea of the highest aspirations of the person and associating that with the American dream has that, that connection, that association has been broken over time. Because nowadays, when we talk about the American dream, you think about the house, the picket fence, the job, the marriage, the children, and sort of this ideal situation, right? What if that's not your highest aspiration? What if your dream is to come to the United States and become an engineer? What if your dream is to come to the United States and do something different? And that's where things start to fall apart. So when you look at, for example, the Latino community, let's just say we go by the standard, this sort of standard application of the American dream. So what I'm saying is that there's been a dissociation between the ideal of the American dream and how it plays out in reality, right? For one, for one, let's, let's not even start about equality is not real. Equality is not there, right? So we we both we all know that the Latinos, the African Americans, our Native Americans, they're not necessarily starting off on the same footing. So the equality of opportunity is not is already not there. We know that discrimination is real. So even as you are moving forward, there are things that are pushing you back. So there's that piece, okay? So, but the the other side of it is that even if you look at the application of the American dream. So if you look at things like income, we already know that Latinos have a 77% uh, uh, 77% of, of the dollar that a white person makes, right? So there's a 23% income gap. For every dollar a white person makes, a Latino makes 77%. So, and that's your income, right? That's the money that you have coming in on a monthly, yearly basis. Add that over, and then there's a wealth gap, right? The wealth gap, wealth is your accumulation of assets, right? The wealth gap is 80% between average white and average Latino family. So for every dollar in assets that a white family has, a Latino family has 20 cents, right? And that is where we start talking about intergenerational wealth and all of these other things, right? Which means that Latino families don't have the, the cushion. They don't have the space. They don't, they're not investing. We're not investing as we should be, or ideally, as the American dream says, that we should be able to create that wealth for ourselves over time. It has, is it growing? Absolutely, it's growing. But that gap remains massive. Okay. Then you take it one step further. And you think about things like, and this is just one angle of looking at it, okay? But as you look at, for example, things like mental health, um, you start looking at mental health in the Latino community. The statistic, there's, there's tons of statistics, but the one that always sticks out in my mind, 4 million Latinos every year have a major depressive episode. So this is not just, I feel sad and I want to listen to some sad music and I'm just kind of bummed out that day. This is deep depression to the point where those around you notice and those around you uh, become worried about you and it impedes your ability to go about your day to day. Okay. So this is 4 million Latinos every year who are experiencing this. When you ask them, 
why, what do you, what's the catalyst for this? What's pushing this sort of depth of depression? It comes back to what they see as their failure to achieve these check marks of the American dream. I haven't made the money I should be making. I'm worried about supporting my family. I don't have the cushion. Um, I haven't gotten married. I don't have children. All of these things are elements that the American dream sort of says you should have to be successful. And it's what's stressing them out. On top of that, add that Latinos and especially male Latinos don't seek help, much less likely to seek help than the average person. And so that we have all of these folks really not functioning at 100%, not being able for lots of reasons to get the help that they should have in order to help them cope better and have better coping mechanisms and yet still in the chase. You know, so it becomes this this really interesting circular logic sort of a thing where, you know, you have this metric that you're trying to chase. You're not quite making it. You don't feel good about it yet. Ironically, and what blows my mind is that the Latino community, we continue to be some of the most optimistic about the American dream. So the, the some of the biggest believers in the American dream are the Latino community. Despite the fact that it is that there are hurdles to reach it, we're struggling to get there. The mental health crisis is burgeoning, you know, and uh, and and yet there's there's so much belief in it because it brings hope. You know, it's 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 a it's a beautiful shining thing on the hill, and I think it brings hope to people. So so <laughs> to to sort of to sort of give you an idea, it, that that's the that's the situation that I see. You know, that there is this huge barrier in a lot of ways that we're, we're sort of chasing the wrong thing. You know, so when I think about solutions for the Latino community, that, that's the perspective that I see it coming from. I definitely hear you. And we're going to break down a lot of the things that you refer to um, yeah. kind of in sections as we progress in this conversation and a lot of the perspective that I'm going to kind of come from from where I'm standing will be what I'm seeing obviously in the in the black community because like I said this is a particular conversation I haven't had much of but yeah. I'm going to go from where I think I understand the the parameters of the conversation so with that said we're, we're going to dive into a lot of that we're going to dive into kind of where you're coming from and I will say this that we do need to recognize, although sometimes, well, a lot of times, especially in the black community, people get a little bit too black pilled based off the, the, the hurdles that you're referring to, because we don't need to be ignorant about the what the American dream is. Although I think in terms of America, the opportunity to succeed is greater than basically every other every country in the world. They, the ignorance plays in thinking that you will be equal to everybody else, especially if you're an immigrant. And that's just blatantly false. That just won't be the case. Because regardless of where you go, discrimination will be taking place for a lot of different reasons. And regardless of where you go um, when you come to America, people will have certain connections, like you said, and certain type of uh, generational wealth. So, yes, it will not be totally equal. And pretending that when you come to America that that will be is a false idea of what the American dream is. 
But something that is interesting from your perspective is at the very least, Latina community recognize that there is hope and still is striving towards uh, prosperity versus a lot of things that I've seen in the black community as of recently. They don't have that hope, even though they have the same type of opportunity. And you can argue. So with that said, we're going to dive into that, ladies and gentlemen, and to really kind of gauge where uh, Paul's coming from. I'm going to ask you a couple questions on kind of some political ideals that you may or may not uh, agree with and to get a better understanding in the perspective you're coming from. Uh, so to start off, uh, do you have a political affiliation that you abide by? I do. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely um, left leaning. Um, definitely socially liberal, I would say. Um, you know, at the same time, I'm I'm an economist by by training and by love, and so there are definitely um, elements of sort of a more conservative fiscal approach that that I appreciate. Um, but I would say that at least for me, the way the the right has gone in the last several years has not been something that I'm comfortable with, you know, it, it's, it's gone certainly beyond the, the sort of fiscal conservative aspect, but that's, that's, that's what I would say. Yeah. All right. Excellent. With that said, from your perspective, coming from the left, do you believe that the current discord, and you mentioned some criticism with the right, um, there's definitely a very warranted criticism on the right. I have some criticism on both sides personally, but one thing that I've brought up in the current state of discourse between the two sides. Do you think that the current state of political discourse is has is as divided as it has been potentially since the Civil War? Man, okay. Um that's that's a you know that's a long that's a long look back. You mean you're asking me generally speaking Yes. The, the 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 flavor of political discourse. At the very least, from your perspective, since you kind of view politics in America, yeah. do you think that that's been divided as you've kind of been paying attention? You know, it, it's 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 hard to it's hard to talk about division in a lot of ways. Um, I would I mean, I, I do not disagree that that things look extremely dark to me right now in terms of that division but i think that there are multiple layers of division you know i i i still believe for example that there are many uh right leaning folks who are who are what i would call true patriots in the sense that they that they truly believe in democratic values and uh the value and the hope that this country represents um but I see division on the right, and I see division on the left as well. And 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 to me, personally, to me, I think one of the weaknesses of the left in general is its long-standing propensity to be divided. You know, I, I think that one of the one of the difficult things that the that the left faces constantly is the inability to come to a true consensus. Um, and, and I think it's because the, the the left is sort of founded on the idea of a multiplicity of 
uh, opinions and perspectives. And so that I think the left largely finds it offensive almost to try to lump into one thing, you know? And so I think that, you know, when we look at, you know, when we look at President Biden, I don't think that guy was necessarily anyone's favorite. He was, I think, sort of the the least unfavorite on a lot of sides. You know what I mean? So he's to me, he's the he's the outcome of a lot of division on the left. And that was the, the least offensive, you know. Um, and it's not that I'm trying to dodge your question at all, but, you know, no, you're fine. I, I, it's I, I would say that the that the divisions are deep, you know, and as as you look at, for example, historically. You know, I mean, the, the thing is that the context is a little bit different as well. You know, like you look at, for example, times like I, my mind goes back to sort of like the World War II kind of era. And they talk about a how how united the country was even between the two, you know, the different political sides in the United States. But there was such a commonality of of what they understood to be the real enemy. And so I can understand that. That that sort of put aside some of the differences that that people may have seen at that time. You know, there's it's also a different world now in terms of our access to information and our access to social media and the way in which things are are portrayed now. So, I, I would say that the divisions are extremely extremely deep. I, I worry a lot about our democracy and how this country is going to look in the future. Um, but I'm, I would, I would also say that there's, that there's also a lot of opportunity to, to potentially reshape how it is that we, that we go about policy making and implementing policy and, and how we, how we try to respect each other. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely have, um, hope for kind of mending political discourse and it's going to require yeah. very tough conversations like the one we're having right now but i wouldn't even say you dodged my question because a lot of things that you said i do agree with one thing i will say is that the general viewpoint to me from the outside looking in is that the most representative way to look at both sides seem to be from the extremes like when you someone looks at the left they think of an extreme lefty that represents your side and the same with the right they think of an extreme righty to represent your side and the the division on the left that exists right now and the division on the right that exists right now is perfectly represented in the two last presidents and probably two primary candidates of this year. A lot of people on the left don't like Joe Biden and he's supposed to be the Democratic president. A lot of people on the right don't like Donald Trump. He's supposed to be the Republican president. So there's division between the left and the right amongst themselves and then the representation of the fact that they're been kind of being viewed as the getting more and more radical and pushing further and further is also indicating the division between the two sides in general as the middle seems to be not necessarily disappearing but anytime you people think that you're in the middle they probably just think you're on, you're not if you're not on my side you're on their side as of right now so that is and the access of technology and information has definitely changed the way we kind of engage into in terms of politics and discourse and whether or not people even kind of know what's going on in the not only the I've said this multiple times, the echo chambers you can fall yourself into because of this ability to engage in social media through or get into politics through social media. 
but also the potential information you're uh, gaining and the rabbit holes you can get into based off selection bias of the information that you're due to the algorithm uh, kind of researching. So there's a lot of things I agree with in terms of that, of course. Um, my last question for here before we kind of dive into the topic at hand is what is your viewpoint on third parties? You did mention something about, you know, being potentially hopeful in terms of, you know, uh, potential policies that can help uh, the the sides, for so to speak, come together. Do you believe, considering the division on all these different layers, that the value of third parties can definitely potentially improve political discourse in a way, providing a different perspective of conversation, a potentially more nuanced, maybe even more moderate perspective of these conversations uh, in which that that new perspective can kind of bring together a lot of the the friction between the two sides. Do you think the value of third parties can be a benefit for American politics as a whole? I to short answer, I I do. Um, I don't you know, I, I can't say that I have thought through the repercussions all the way. But as you as you were asking the question just now, I was remembering um, a course that I took as a as a doctoral student where they basically you show how it is that that you um, when you're studying sort of people's preferences and how they rank order preferences that there's a really interesting thing that one of the one of them one of the things that we do for example in the United States is that you vote basically Republican or Democrat you vote yes or no black or white whatever it is right and and there's been a lot actually quite a bit of research showing how instead of sort of these binary uh, choices, if there was the opportunity instead to create rank ordered preferences. So given this menu of preferences, it's not that I'm voting for just this one or just the other one, but rather given this menu of options, what, in what order would I prefer them from, you know, from whatever most preferred to least preferred. And then there's a matching algorithm that goes into it. And the outcome of that is typically that it's not necessarily the case that you or anyone else will always get their first choice, but it's also the case that you and everyone else will almost never get their last choice either, right? So it's it's a way of arriving at a at a consensus sort of decision that people are more likely to be able to generally accept and work with, and that's what that's what I think that that something like a third party system in the United States could represent for us. Uh, basically the opportunity to not just be binary, but to have an opportunity and a space in which we can sort of come towards uh, a situation where there's a little more agreement and overlap and, you know, consensus on, on what, what it is that we see as our, as our common objectives as Americans, you know? And I'm glad you brought that up. And something that I preach consistently on this podcast, especially ever since I found out, is that there's currently strategies on this type of voting reform that stray away from basically what you said, the kind of lesser two evil option where it's like, uh, it's only two guys going to win. I don't really care about the other candidates. They're probably not going to win. So I'm just going to pick the one that I hate the least situation. And now um, I'm a big advocate for something called star voting, which is 
basically doing exactly what you're referring to and laying out a ballot that allows you to give your opinions and your ratings and um, kind of your honest truth of who you want as a candidate on multiple different candidates, give them a rank of between five stars and also allows you to give a ranking for a third party candidate as well. So the voting that that you're about to kind of do at that moment is more representative on your current right. beliefs. So that is something that is going on today. Of course, everybody listening, I'm sure you've heard of me talk about it. I've had uh, some of the people from the star voting organization come on and be an advocate. Definitely supports the star voting. It's a new voting reform. And I, I still think it'll be amazing for uh, changing the way we engage into politics moving forward. So have you heard of uh, star voting at all, by the way? I, I, I actually have not. Um, I would the one thing that I would add to your commentary there, though, is that this this sort of this sort of system for voting also requires. I mean, as does our current. But I think that this sort of system that we're talking about also requires voters, citizens, individuals to take it upon themselves to actually have meaningful ideas and opinions about it you know what i mean so i i think that that i i think people often vote emotionally and not necessarily informed so i would advocate that especially for this kind of system that we're talking about that people understand the difference between the different options that are that are facing them uh, that you know, you take the the take the time to understand the ramifications of your different choices. Uh, talk about it over the dinner table. You know, I know it's not cool to talk about politics at the dinner table, but you know, it's it's your future, it's your country's future. It affects you. I think those are conversations well worth having in in an open minded, open forum kind of a way. I, I definitely agree, and a big stepping stone, or yeah, a big stepping stone to kind of go that direction obviously we have individuals like myself like paul that will engage into politics because we see the value of understanding this stuff in the betterment of our current society but in order to help the kind of general populace you're going to have to make voting matter most people don't think voting matters at the end of the day they think that only the presidential election matters one and two as long as i know who the two popular candidates is that's fine once you make it, once you give them the ability for their opinion to matter to more than just the two most popular presidential candidates, that's going to start a precedent for the individuals to start actually caring and researching potentially and being a lot more informed on other candidates, what their positions are, what their policies are, and also force the candidates to focus more on positions and actually caring about what they're saying versus playing the politics game of oh this guy sucks or she sucks because x y and z um and they're just playing this weird kind of game of you suck versus i'm better i'm and then all that dumb stuff honestly so that's that's a big thing for uh, for sure in my opinion as well so with that said let's dive into the topic at hand um and I want to give you the opportunity kind of to say, what do you see in the Latino uh, communities as, as of right now? I know you talked a little bit about, you know, the 
you know, some things regarding you know, how they kind of perceive the American dream and some potential hurdles uh, in comparison to other demographics, of course. But as of right now, when you see the Latino community um, very broadly, what do you see? What do you see them as right now? And what are potentially hopes that you can think that can uh, be better for them moving forward? So I'll be curious sure. to see your opinion regarding that. So there was a study that came out uh, just a few months ago. It's called the, the Latino GDP report. And I, I, if you haven't taken a chance, if you haven't had a chance to take a look at it, I highly recommend it. It's out there. You can download it. There's a lot of interesting results in it. But the biggest result, like the big sort of top level result, is basically that if you took the Latino economy within the United States and made it its own country, it would be the fourth largest economy in the world. Massive, massive amount of money that's going through the Latino community. That said, once you, the, the, the next sort of logical step that goes from that is Latinos must be super well off. And then you realize, but wait, hold on, that's that's not quite the case. There are Latinos who are well off, but I don't think anybody would say, wow, the Latino community is looking, you know, doing amazing necessarily. And so once you start taking that that large number, which is about, I think, $3.2 trillion, and you divide it in sort of the per capita, you see that that's when the numbers sort of come out. And so you realize that there's that that's that sort of goes back to some of those income and, and wealth numbers that I was talking about earlier, right? That basically for the for the amount of Latinos that are out there in the United States, even though the number, the total GDP of Latinos is a huge number, there it's still a huge gap to what it should be in terms of making it, of if we had anything resembling parity, which I'm not saying that it should be that way, but it's it's just sort of a, a benchmark, a way to, to measure it, right? So there's that piece, right? So, so that's a huge amount of money. You see so much marketing nowadays being aimed at the Latino community because it's just good business. You know, there's, there's you know, 60 million Latinos out there. Um, there's, there is money there. They're spending. They're not saving their money because they don't have. They're, they're not in that point. So they're spending their money. And so there's so much marketing that's being directed at Latinos. Um, so much messaging about what you should have and what you should buy, and that sort of thing. So that's that's one side. The other side is that what you need to understand about about Latinos, and this is something that um, I think my experience has been different with the African American community. And it's, well, give, let me get back to that for a second. Latinos, when they come to the United States, don't call themselves Latinos, right? My mom doesn't say she's Latina. My mom says she's Mexican. My dad says he's Salvadoran. My wife says she's Nicaraguan. Um, you know, Latin America is a huge continent. Um, what, what we have in common is a base language. But, you know, if you ever heard a Dominican speak and an Argentinian speak, it's like they're speaking from two different planets. They're speaking the same language, but it doesn't at all sound the same. The grammar is not the same. The slang is not the same. The music isn't the same. The food isn't the same. Uh, possibly the, re the religion isn't even the same, even though historically Catholicism has been a big part of, of the Latino Latin American community. That's I would say that that's less and less now. So there's a lot of 
cultural, linguistic, um, social sort of things that are extremely different all through Latin America. And so then you come to the United States and suddenly you're expected to be a, mono, a sort of monolithic group. You are all Latinos now. You're not, you're not Mexican, you're not Cuban, you're not Nicaraguan, you're not Puerto Rican, you are all Latinos now. And that's, that is really tough because, you know, it's different, it's different countries, it's different cultures. People come with their preconceived notions about other, other types of Latinos within Latin America. And then suddenly you're in the United States and you're expected to be part of that group and you're expected to cooperate and you're expected to, you're told that, you know, you are all part of the same group and you need to lift each other up. And so there's a lot of talk about that, but I don't think Latinos do nearly a good enough job at behaving as a sort of group as, as we're called, you know, th that there's not really a good unified Latino front. And so what I was going back to earlier, that's not something that I see so much within the African-American community. I feel like the African community, African-American community has a much deeper internalized understanding of their commonality as, as African-Americans. And I think there's, my experience has been that African-Americans are actually much more willing to uplift not only each other, but I have to say, and it's really, and I've, I've talked to lots of other successful Latinos who would say the same thing, that their biggest mentors, their biggest cheerleaders, the people who have pushed them, advanced them, the people who have picked up the phone for them and said, I vouch for this person, have been African-Americans supporting the Latino community. And I think that I also think that's not something that nearly gets talked about enough. Um, so, you know, it, it's I, I find it fascinating. There, there are so many Latinos out there, so many, frankly, very successful Latinos out there. But the ones that are helping us and really pushing us to want to get ahead are our African-American brothers and sisters. And so that's something that I'm always sure to say, because it's been it's been really important and i think something that we as latinos need to need to emulate more we need to sort of be on that track of of really uplifting each other and part of that comes back to that idea of accepting that we're in the united states you know we're not in our home countries anymore we can celebrate our own cultures and our and our version of the language and the food but that we also have to acknowledge that we're Latinos. This is how we are seen here. And that the more we can come together as a unified front, the better that we are able to advocate for, frankly, the common struggles that we have. And, you know, that, that, that's a big part of where I come from. If, if you've ever seen, um, you know, the actor John Leguizamo, he's a, he's a great actor. He's a comedian, the whole thing. But he's been very, very active, I would say, in the last couple of years, really advocating for. Latinos. And I, I actually had the chance to see him speak uh, just a few months ago in at a big conference in Miami. And he did something that I have never seen another Latino do, which is that he went for about five minutes talking about how much he loves, you know, uh, Venezuelan food and Dominican, uh, Dominican Spanish and uh, Argentinian music and tango. And he basically had this whole amazing love fest for for latinos and the latino community and and he and he went so far out of his way to basically 
kind of echo the message that I'm saying here that that that's great. You bring all of that and the more that you bring, the stronger that that Latino community is in the United States. And the more that you celebrate all of that, the stronger that that you are as an individual because you accept and um, take pride in your culture and your version of it to the point where you can appreciate everyone, everyone else's. I found it really fascinating that in his talk, at no point did he say where he was from. And that was, I think to me, that was really important that it was all about, he identifies as a Latino, he talks about all of us being Latinos and that we all bring that strength together, that we all need to uplift each other that way. It was, it was a version of that message that I had never heard on that kind of level before and which I, I really, really appreciated that from him. And that's, that's what I would like to see more of, you know, that the Latino community coming together in commonality, uplifting each other um, and creating not not just that pipeline, but creating pipelines that don't exist yet. You know, I definitely hear what you're saying when it comes down to um, Latino community coming together, because from my perspective, I don't I'd probably agree that I don't really see a more uh, a solid um, solidified front from all Latinos um, across America, especially compared to the black community. I mean, we have a lot of movements in the black community that are very powerful and very loud. Um, the thing I will say, though, I think I guess the biggest difference is obviously black people have a more embedded uh, stake in what the United States is and the history of the United States, because there is somewhat of a difference and sometimes they integrate very well. But there is someone somewhat of a difference between a black American versus an immigrant from um, a different country, maybe from Africa or from South uh, South America, of course. And there is some disconnect between the two groups, especially groups that come in more wealthier than and more wealthy than other individuals. But overall, even though that does happen sometimes, because I've heard people from Nigeria, for example, or, you know, someone from. Um, Jamaica, for example, kind of say that they are distinctly different from black people, um, uh, black Americans, they still identify as black American at the end of the day, even though they, they keep hold of their culture. So I definitely hear what you're saying regarding that. And a solidified front is always good because we always want to make sure that we're pushing the status quo we're making sure that everybody's improving on every uh, front uh, from especially from the marginalized community so everyone can continue to prosper and we don't let certain groups mostly kind of my viewpoint i don't tech for me personally i don't really see it um as a kind of a race versus race situation i see it as the kind of basically disappearing middle class and the lower income and the very, 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 very rich people and what they're doing over there. So constantly putting pressure on them is good. With that said, in addition to solidifying the Latino community and obviously pushing different aspects of like Latino culture, you did mention that there's a lot more kind of individuality between the Latino community with all the different countries that you're referring to, the different types of slang, maybe dialect, and um, even religion. Do you think the, the solidification of the Latino community would take away from that certain level of individuality of all these groups 
And do you think that this is something that people want necessarily? Uh, because even though, and I'm gonna let you answer this question, even though for the most part, I'd say the Latino community is on the left, there is a growing sense of Latino communities moving towards the right as well. So there is definitely a big expression on their individuality based off their own culture and stuff that you're referring to. So do you think this is in the best interest in the Latino community as a whole with all these individual differences that you're referring to? Sure. Um, so by, I've mentioned I'm an economist. I am specifically a microeconomist, which means that I, I place a tremendous amount of worth and value and importance on the individual and the choices that the individual makes and the way the individual goes about making choices. And so some of what I talked about earlier in terms of the American dream and, you know, this sort of thing, this shining thing on the hill that people are chasing and how that is damaging a lot of a lot of our culture, I think, is because it is forcing a an optimization problem that is not necessarily the right one for each individual. Okay. So for me, maximizing that individuality, meaning creating the opportunity for each person to think about their purpose in life. Why am I here? What is What are the strengths that I bring? What are the unique problem-solving approaches to problems that I bring? Creating in individuals and in families and in communities, the methods, the approaches, the openness for each person to take that sort of core, that inner purpose and align their actions, align their lives to it such that the person is living authentically. And I think at the end of the day, that that lack of authenticity is the problem for me with so much of what we talk about in terms of the American dream. So creating that space where people are able to be authentic and in that sense, individual, whether it's with what they choose to uh, pursue in terms of careers, uh, lifestyle, and the cultures that they choose to adopt. So, you know, included in that is how strong do they want to be affiliated with their uh, sort of country of origin and that and how much pride they express in that all of that is something that people need to have the the space in which to behave authentically about and not be told that you know if you're doing so for example I will give you an example my uh, my wife who's you know my my partner in in our business she's the primary author of our book creating your limitless life that that we've just published she has a PhD in environmental science. Um, and she will tell you that as she was pursuing her degree, the most common messaging that she heard from her fellow Latinos and Latinas was that environmental science is for white people. And that was the messaging that she got, right? We as Latinos don't do that. You must somehow be less Latino if that's what you're doing, right? When the truth is, for one, a big part of what she talked about was looking at, for example, how it is that in things are bordering on environmental justice and looking at how different, different types of uh, polluting activities most strongly affect uh, immigrant 
black, brown, Latino communities in the United States, right? So part of that is actually understanding how it is that our communities are affected by a lot of these things. So if, if anything, we should be the ones who care the most about it. But there's that perspective, right? That there are things that, that, that we as Latinos do and we as Latinos don't do. And we need to have, that's a big part of the discourse that needs to change, that we support this idea that people have an authenticity, that people have an individuality that they need, that, that they are, that they should be able to express, align their lives with in so many ways. And to me, that creation of that, that space for that individuality is specifically what creates a stronger community. Because when you have that support from your community, when you have that support from your family, um, you know, so much of what we see now, we, Esther and I, my wife and I, we speak a lot, for example, at colleges and universities, specifically to uh, Black and Latino students. And we hear so often from Latino students that in order for them to go to college, in order for them to pursue what they want to pursue, that they, that they literally have to break away from their families that their families have other expectations for them, that their families tell them that this is not for you. This is, this is not what Latinos do. And they have to make the choice of, do I follow what I want to do or do I listen to what my family says? And so for them to make that choice is something emotionally painful. It causes them a lot of pain, you know, to not be able to feel like they have the space to express that authenticity in themselves. So I think, you know, that, that that's a big piece of it, creating those spaces within our communities where we allow people to be authentic, pursue their purpose, align their actions to it, and that that is what's going to help make our community stronger. Something that's going to help us, the young people want to stay in the communities, to want to actually be part of the communities, to integrate into them, to make them stronger. And that that, at the end of the day, to me, that is something that will not only transcend, but actually help us see as a, as a strength and a benefit, for example, the, the cultural differences that we see across Colombians, Dominicans, Mexicans, Nicaraguans, Hondurans, that, you know, if, if I am so sufficiently secure in my identity as a Mexican Salvadoran born in the United States, that I can appreciate all of that that then I also can see someone else from a totally different part of Latin America, see them as my brother and sister and want to uplift them and see them as part of my community as well. So when it comes down to it, although I think that the communities at large, the marginalized communities, like the, the poor communities, the in general should always come together to make sure their community is better because it's going to take the people to make the community better. There is absolutely nothing wrong for resources based off a certain type of experience that everybody that is a part of that group can kind of, um, uh, they can, kind of connect with basically so a resource for the latino community to allow them to be their authentic self as you said and potentially um go down the road of opportunity in a more efficient manner is very understandable there's absolutely nothing wrong with it from my opinion of course so with that said when you have that resource available for this community that Obviously, if you're Latino, if you're, you know, Hispanic in any sort of way, this is a way for you to kind of use this resource to 
achieve the American dream that everybody's talking about. And the goal from basically what it sounds like is to ensure that, yes, hard work potentially gives you the opportunity to get the career or fulfill that dream that you're having. Well, we want to have the ability to ensure that where you start from the path of that you're about to walk is as close as everybody else's as possible. So to ensure that the the starting point, because that's the big thing. Yes, the opportunity there is there, but the biggest thing when it comes to these conversation is the starting point. To ensure the starting point is equal, or I would be, I would dare say even greater to some other P, uh, uh, groups as well. How would you ensure that that starting point is better for the Latino community moving forward? Okay, so a couple things um, from. From a particular point of view, one of the things that really holds back um, growth, and this is, you know, this is sort of almost macroeconomics 101, but one of the biggest things that constrains growth is access to credit. Um, you know, and we see that we see that everywhere. I've I've worked with farmers all over the world, and they talk about, you know, I need I need more credit because I have a gap between my my sowing season and my harvesting season, and I need some credit to get me through. Or I need, you know, you talk to fishermen in in Ghana, and they'll tell you, you know what, I could do so much better if I had a second boat, but I don't have the cash and I can't get the credit, right? So there's credit constraining growth um, or lack of access to credit. And that's definitely something that I see uh not, I mean, certainly not only in the, in the Latino communities, but in the in the African American communities and, and in Native American communities in the United States as well. Is that lack unwillingness of lenders to take a chance on on these folks, and so it that's something that really puts people behind in terms of how it is that they're going to go about um, investing. In a sense, you know. Immigrants in the United States are the most likely group to start their own business because that's how people see that that opportunity, you know, in, in the face of of unequal opportunity and discrimination. The best thing that I can do is sort of strike off, strike off on my own um, and credit access to to just operational credit is one of the things that really constrains new businesses. And so as much as for example, Latinos and African-Americans are most likely to start new businesses. They're also the most likely to fail because they're not able to grow in that way. So for, so one would be to, you know, find ways to improve access to productive uses of credit that Latinos and immigrants um, may have access to as they come to the United States. That's one piece. The second piece is that I think that there is a tremendous amount of value in sort of community level organizations. And so I, I'm gonna tell you specifically what I think about here. So one of the biggest things that that really boosts someone's potential earning capacity is how they build up their human capital, right? And human capital, the easiest way to think about it is, is education. It's a lot more complex than that, but that's the easiest way to think about it, right? When I was a professor, um, I was a professor in a heavily Latino community and we would go to high schools and and basically give motivational speeches to the students, to the teachers, to the administration, to their parents. Um, 
And a lot of the times we saw that the kids, the students themselves had a vision. They wanted to go to college. They had something in mind that they wanted to do. Uh, but it was really hard to talk to the parents. And the parents would often give me the messaging along the lines of what I was talking about earlier of, you know, they, they, they would call me teacher, you know, teacher, maestro, you know, that's, that sounds great and all, but that's not really for people like us. Right. And, and it, that, that's such a heartbreaking thing all the time for me to hear, you know, because I, I come from immigrant family. I know what, I know what that space looks like. And when, when they say people like us, to me, people like us is people who work their asses off people who took massive risks to leave the comfort of the situation of their home countries to come to a place where they knew nobody who didn't speak the language necessarily, you know, so they're risk takers, they're entrepreneurs, they're hardworking. So, you know, if opportunity isn't for those people, for who is it, you know? So, so I think there's a tremendous amount of value in having community-based organizations that specifically are about strategizing how it is that we message within our families and within our communities to create those opportunities and to understand that this is a long-term game. You know, it's the sort of thing that, yes, I'm, I'm going to be in school for several years, but this is what the opportunity, that opportunity is going to do for me, for us, for our family, for our community, for my future. This is why you came, right? You came to give us opportunities. Let's exploit those opportunities to the fullest. Let's maximize our chances of really making it. And so I think that those, those conversations need to happen. I don't think enough of those conversations are happening within Latino communities, within Latino households, about what it is that we need to do strategically, really rationally, to build up our own uh, opportunity, our own potential, take advantage of what's there, and really maximize it to, to the greatest extent possible. Those are definitely interesting uh, solutions that you're referring to, um, because I do think that obviously the the re reference to to credit is huge, and that just like you said plays into um, economics, plays into business, uh, because at the end of the day, how many people are just going to have the money up front to do some of the bigger visions that they have in um, for or they have for themselves, of course. So that that's definitely common sense, and it makes sense of, um, to. As a, as a resource at the very least in terms of the second thing you're referring to that definitely is a step in kind of changing mindset changing culture to yeah. allow people to kind of extend beyond what they think is okay for for them and there's nothing wrong with it because like you said that that abides to the american dream of course so those are very interesting things and aspects but when it comes to changing the mindset changing the culture and building this community that you're referring to some of the things that you reference is something much more individualized for the people and that's mental health and something that i saw you um reference at, at some point as well is kind of the culture of masculinity the culture of you know the the values that they in, instill bringing from wherever they brought it from and trying to uh, plant it here of course so not only will you try to change the the outlook of what it means to be a successful latino well, you're going to have to change the what it means to be basically Latino in itself right now. And that's going to be a big culture change. How would you go about doing that and engaging in these conversations 
to potentially bring a healthier and more optimistic, more optimistic than it already is, an open-minded uh, mindset for the Latino community? I think that is a huge piece. It's something that I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up because it's something that that I feel really, really passionate about in terms of redefining masculinity in terms of in terms of the Latino community, which means really, at the end of the day, redefining how it is that Latinos see their roles within their families and their communities. Um, you know, the it's it's a joke. It's funny. Um, you see so much, you know, if you if you look at anything Latino on Instagram or TikTok, um, you t there's so many things about that come back, come down to machismo, how it is that men should act. Um, this this interesting stoicism that we're expected to have where where anything that shows vulnerability is necessarily a weakness and there's nothing worse in machismo than appearing weak. Um, and I think that that is, you know, when, when we think it's, it's beyond, it's beyond toxic. It's something that infiltrates our minds and the ways in which we talk to each other, the way in which men talk to and talk about women. It's, 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 it's more, than toxic it's a burden that we end up carrying um you know i i think that there are that so much of machismo is show that a lot of a lot, so many latino men actually want to express their feelings and want to uh talk about the things that worry them and bother them and the things that they're afraid of and and our culture doesn't necessarily have a lot of avenues for for men to do that um and which means that it's more than just men because women reinforce it too, right? So we're sort of all bought into this, this cultural paradigm and it's something that, that really needs to change. And you asked me about how, and my solution has been basically this, like this conversation that we're having is, a, is part of my how and, and talking about it and calling it out and telling people that you can do better, you know, um, that's, that's a piece of it. And, it's me getting on any stage that I can and talking about that. When I talk to, um, you know, the thousands of university students that I've talked to, I have that conversation. Um, when I talk to, you know, anybody in my circle, I have that conversation because it's really important for men to understand that, in fact, seeing vulnerability as weakness is actually fundamentally wrong. Right. The word the word vulnerable means that you are open to harm. Right. That's literally the root of the meaning of the word. It means that you're open to harm. To me, knowingly putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable is the ultimate expression of strength. I'm so I feel so strong. I feel so confident in my position, in what I do, that I am willing to show you my vulnerability and that that is true strength. So for me, a big piece of redefining that that latino masculinity is really having that expression of vulnerability as strength be part of the the core principle of it and then talking about it you know talking about it as much as you can i i talk to my wife all the time about the things that i worry about and the things that i'm afraid of and you know the things that i think about and the things i dream about and and really starting to to create those circles for myself where um 
where the, that's the sort of conversations that we have. You know, we, we get away from, um, you know, and if any of your listeners are, are Latinos, one of the big things that we hear in our families is a lot of what's called chisme culture. And chisme is basically gossip that, you know, instead of that, that a favorite pastime is basically to gossip about other family members and people that you know on the street and people that you know in common and really trying to change that conversation to, you know what, that's, that's really unproductive conversation, you know, and starting to have those conversations instead about ideas and, and start talking about, you know, ways that we can propel ourselves forward and things that, that are much more genuine and authentic than, than just gossiping about others. But the how at the end of the day requires the individual to take responsibility to see, to visualize a better outcome and to take steps to actually make that happen, you know? And it, and it requires a certain amount of, of strength because it's gonna mean arguing with your family sometimes. And, you know, we've, we've had several arguments within our family about, you know, what, you know what, why are you talking about that? And why are you saying that? And, you know, that's not, that's not appropriate for a Latino and that's not appropriate for a man to, you know, to, to say and to talk that way. And, the reality is that, as I said, you know, we have to do something different because we see this crisis of identity in the Latino community. We see this crisis of mental health in the Latino community. And we can do so much better, I think, just by really having these open, authentic conversations that are not always easy. I'm not saying it's easy and sometimes it's going to be ugly, but that the, the possibilities for a better outcome absolutely warrant those conversations. I would say, and, you know, thinking about our conversation as we started out, I think that's true, not just in the Latino community. I think that's something at a national level, you know, that, that really would benefit this country, this opportunity to have these open conversations. I'm not saying they're going to be easy. I'm not saying they're going to be pretty, but if you go into them with an open mind uh, and looking for common ground instead of looking for ways to for ways to divide i think that the potential for a positive stronger outcome is absolutely worth the conversation yeah i i definitely agree and i wholeheartedly agree to the sentiment that this kind of applies wider than even the latino community yeah it's a little it's definitely flawed thinking that you got to be this kind of stoic individual that stays in your lane, of course, because at the end of the day, every innovation that we've seen basically requires some level of vulnerability to get out there to kind of change what is current society. In order to progress, you have to do things that is against the status quo in the first place, as we've known. Uh, Bill Gates did something that nobody expected and created Microsoft. You know, when it comes down to the sports, uh, Jackie Robinson did something unexpected by joining the MLB being the first African-American baseball player. And that's kind of set a tone in terms of sports. So there is time and time again, there's things that are currently existing in society that for the most part, in order to reach its current state of being, it required a certain level, certain level of risk and vulnerability to gain that are to enter that level of success in the first place so i i agree it's flawed and the conversations that you need to have are extremely important extremely valuable just having questions just kind of bouncing off ideals to learning about different perspectives at that moment you start entering a level of thinking about not only yourself your community your people 
but the society as a whole and thinking about ways to improve society because ultimately the betterment of communities the better of you as an individual and your people for the most part unless you're some crazy psychopath that wants to destroy america is in the betterment of america as a whole uh that's the whole thing that's kind of the 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 mindset of even capitalism like everybody succeeds um if you know your community succeeds for the most part with that said the conversations are important making sure they have the proper resources and tools are important but something that should always be mentioned in this conversations is not only appealing to the groups that you're currently in because this all sounds good for the latino community as you said and we as you have these conversations you'll convince people and get people on board of course but there's other outside external factors you have to consider in terms of pushing this solution forward and one big thing that people on marginalized communities always have to consider is that okay whether you guys agree with it or not but what about the majority population the white people right the white individuals that uh, exist and not the rich people because those people have a very very specific mindset but the other poor white people middle class white people that are not inherently benefiting from you know your non-success but are living their own lives and have no interest in getting themselves involved with anybody else if it doesn't interest their own well-being and what they're going through and what struggles they're going to of course so when it comes down to specifically like the the poor white communities because obviously they're what they what latino communities doing for them and the resources that they're implementing or for their people of course but you can understand why someone from the white community that is in the poor end that doesn't have the same resources or conversation that's uh, that's going on doesn't see why they should support it even though they're the majority population when it comes to the you know poor white people of course how do you appeal to these people because expecting them to just morally get on your side is unrealistic a lot of that you can find a lot of people that do do that but especially in the more tough areas they got other things that they're focusing on how do you think how do you approach these people to kind of get along get along with the ride basically and go yeah. kind of get with the idea of improving the community and how improve america as a whole like how do you talk to these type of people yeah so you know my my uh, my career as a as a facilitator and a coach and a strategist has has taken lots of lots of interesting turns and uh, you know i've been in situations lots of times where basically i have i have groups communities that are fundamentally at odds with each other you know that they are that there's the the environmentalists on one side and the business interests on the other side and the community on the other side and the government on the other side um and and these conversations get really really heated it's not clear that there's any common ground it's not clear that you're going to come to a solution um i had a a professor and mentor actually as a as a master's student when we were talking about microeconomics and uh, you know, oftentimes in microeconomics, you talk about market failure, that there's, you know, there was some sort of market and the market failed. Um, 
And he, his lesson was that when the market fails, the solution is more market. That there's some aspect that isn't being considered in the market. And so you don't have enough market. So you solve the market problem with more market. I look at these situations very similar. And so when, when the conversation isn't going right, the solution is more conversation. Um, and so I've, I've applied that in my, in my facilitation, in my workshops and all of those things. Um, and it applies at the individual level too. So, you know, I'm, as you mentioned in my introduction, I, I'm co-founder of, of this company, BAC Change, where we do, um, we do a lot of coaching, we do facilitation, we work with business teams, we work with NGOs, um, to basically help them align and move forward. And our original idea, our original concept behind this business and behind the book that we've written, Creating Your Limitless Life, was really aiming it at uh, Latinos, immigrants, people who's, who we understood to have a commonality of experience with. And the shocking thing, as we've been, you know, growing our business and, you know, selling these, selling the book and, you know, touring it, that some of the folks that we have connected with the most and most strongly are exactly this group of folks that you're talking about. Sort of, there, there's an entire group of frankly marginalized white people in the United States who who face so many of the same struggles that that immigrant communities face. That they don't have that same access to credit. They don't have the generational wealth. Um, they don't necessarily see an infinity of opportunities and the American dream red carpet laid out before them. You know, they see what they, what they see is that they see the day-to-day -day struggles. They struggle with, they, you know, they may struggle with poverty. They struggle with healthcare. They struggle with all sorts of things that we don't necessarily typically associate with the white world in the United States. But, you know, it's, it's also a fallacy to think that, that that group doesn't exist. And the truth is that once you start talking about the, the experience, not necessarily as a Latino, but as, as the experience as as you live it and talking about the struggles i find that that more conversation is always the avenue towards towards that um towards that common ground um so you know it's it's sort of a, a general answer to your question but what 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 we talk about what i talk about with my clients in the book and everything else is that each person brings a unique perspective you know there's we have this whole series of exercises that we go through with our clients be they individual or corporate or ngos about understanding what we call their personal brand and basically showing how it is that each person has a unique perspective and has a unique approach to problems and that as a result of that once you fully account for that you and i can be in the same sphere, in the same sort of general area, be it personally, professionally, and not necessarily feel competition with each other. And that's a big part of the conversation we have with, with the population that I that we we didn't think was our original con, you know target population. That understanding that there are skills that each person has, that that community has, that we don't necessarily. And that we have the opportunity to, to frankly, complement each other. 
And so that my growth, it's that it's not necessarily a zero sum game, that my, my gain is not your loss and your gain is not my loss. And that there's an ability to actually work together and, and sort of lift both of our ships. Um, and at least that's the, that's the, that's the experience I've had so far. Um, some of the conversations initially might be difficult because people have preconceived notions about what you are like as a Latino or what they are like as, as white people. Um, but that's just because there hasn't been enough conversation. And so the real bridge there is continuing to talk about it, talk about less identity as Latino and white and talk about more about um, experience and uh, sort of life and opportunity and emotion. And you'll see that there's so much more commonality and so much more that that really unites us than than divides us and that and that frankly almost everything that that I've talked about can apply to to those communities as well. Uh that's definitely very fair. Um and I could definitely see how people would gravitate towards the experience that you're referring to because a lot of the time I whatever I say in terms of like helping the black community, of course, and things that I've heard in regards to the black community that I agreed and disagreed with in different aspects and avenues in terms of approach towards success from the black community and the perception of other communities, of course, I always try to keep in mind and I always try to tell people to keep in mind that it is more than your situation now yes discrimination can definitely occur um at different levels when it comes down to success because of like you said certain people certain individuals more specifically may have preconceived notions and try to deter your your path to success in some way in some fashion but overall when it comes down to it a lot of these individuals that are trying to find success and trying to be greater than they are a lot of them are facing a lot of similar bumps in the road regardless of demographic regardless of identity and the machine that is american achieving the american dream ultimately when it comes down to the starting opportunities what well, we know more so than anything else that the biggest biggest or the easiest way to achieve success from in terms of this this path of starting opportunities is if your family already has wealth. And that is the biggest thing at the end of the day. So when we understand that a lot of these other poor communities are starting from an aspect where their their community are potentially potentially very dangerous, potentially filled with things like gang violence or, you know, unnecessary crime potentially over policing, potentially bad public education, um, unfortunate resources, a lack of tools that you're referring to, such as credit and things like that, you start to realize that, yes, we face still face different struggles at the end of the day, but a lot of us are still not able to uh, fulfill the dream that we want to because of very, very similar hurdles. So, my last thing for you, and then we'll start wrapping up the show, is once you potentially or in continuation of trying to solidify the Latino community and find resources for the Latino community, would it be in America's best interest if...
Can you still hear me? Can you hear me again? Hello, can you hear me? Now I can hear you, yeah. Excellent. Technical difficulties, but I'll continue on my rant. But when it comes down to the, uh, you know, in the future, when it comes down to these uh, poor communities that ultimately one of my biggest issues with America right now is dealing with these poor communities filled, filled with the terrible circumstances that I already mentioned, especially considering America in general, I would say, is progressing technology-wise. We're progressing in terms of the amount of food we can give people, the medical care. But there's still there's this weird circumstance where why is there more seems to be more violence in these areas? Seems to be the resources are available, but it's harder for these people to get it. So ultimately, my question to you is. Do you eventually want to enter another kind of layer of, you know, solidified identity where it's more than Latino, but it's just the people who are suffering in these communities in general and solidifying their identity to achieve that same American dream they're referring to? Is that a potential ambition that you would in coinciding with the Latino resource? Because that's having a resource for your group is there's nothing wrong with that. But is that something you considered as well? I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to answer you this way for, for me, my perspective, my message, this idea of listening to others, advancing your purpose, aligning your actions, living authentically is not something that I necessarily see as for Latinos or for anybody else, but honestly, a movement. You know, um, I, I've worked in international development for a long time. I've worked in countries all over the world. Um, I've worked in, in high conflict areas uh, where there's active conflict. And, you know, I've, I'm, I work, I've worked a lot in Haiti. And if you follow the news at all, you know, in terms of what's happening in Haiti in the last couple of years, it's a place that has tremendously lost uh, its, its, its governance systems, its safety. Uh, people are in tremendous food vulnerability. You know, um, um, over 20% of the population is food insecure in Haiti right now. So there's, there's just a, a massive humanitarian crisis that's happening. And as you start talking to people all over the world and including sort of America's inner cities and, and these, these much less well-off smaller towns and, you know, areas where we see gun violence and, and gender-based violence and, you know, much more pervasive um, uh, substance abuse and things like that. As you talk to the folks in those communities anywhere in the world, a big part of what they talk about is their inability to realize their dreams, their inability to move forward with their lives in an authentic way, you know, and, and it's something that, that pops up in, in different ways, you know, like if, you know, I've, I've, I've walked down sort of skid row type areas where you see a lot of uh, young, young people who are there, young white people 
who are there and you don't understand why they're there. And it's because they're, you know, LGBTQ and, and their families don't accept them and uh, they don't have a community and they're not able to live their lives authentically. Um, you talk to folks and a lot of, you know, a lot of these people, these young men who join gangs in Haiti and are out there committing incredible atrocities. When you talk to the gang leaders, the gang leaders in Haiti will tell you that they perfectly well understand that if there was the opportunity for jobs in Haiti, that they would be unable to recruit young men into the gangs. So it's the same thing, right? There's this, there's this inability to move forward with what you see as your, your job in life, your purpose, your your dream, your authentic self. And that's something that is, it's be, we're seeing it as a, as a universal phenomenon. So it's not something that I would say is, is, you know, in any way unique to the Latino community. It's something that, that I talk about it that way, because that's the perspective that I see it from. And, and as you say, I, I want to see my community prosper, but the United States is my community too. You know, the entire country is my community. Um, you know, I, and I think of myself as, frankly, a, a pretty global citizen. So the world is my community. And so I see I see that creating those conversations, having those conversations openly, not only within within what we understand to be our, our own sociocultural communities, but but really taking that conversation and, you know, take it on the road, have those conversations with with people any, anywhere you go. I don't I don't see. I, I see a tremendous opportunity there for for us to come together in in unprecedented ways. You know, you you talked about unprecedented levels of division, you know, that we see in our country now. And and I'm I certainly am am hopeful because I see, as I said, I see this as a movement, you know, I see that movement as the opportunity to create unprecedented levels of understanding and and cooperation that's based on something authentic, something that's based on that starts from a commonality of struggle that that we share, you know, and it's not to talk about I was th I was thinking earlier in our conversation, you, you mentioned something about, you know, not getting into the debate of, you know, who's, who's who has it worse and who's had it worse, you know, between the black community and the, the Latino community and all of that. And I had I had an interesting opportunity recently to hear uh, Jane Elliott speak. I don't know if you're familiar with Jane Elliott, but she was a teacher and I think it must have been in the 60s. Um, and she talks about when um, and I'm, I'm, I apologize if I get it wrong, but if I remember right, her her story was about when um, Martin Luther King was was assassinated, and she was a teacher at the time in rural white America, and she did this experiment basically where um, she made half of the students identify as as basically privileged and not privileged, and she did this whole interesting. Um, classroom experiment that she, I think she eventually even got fired for it and all of this. And basically she, she didn't, she didn't do it this way. She didn't call it this, but she made, you know, one group black and one group white and gave one group privilege over the other and saw how society completely devolved that way, even among, you know, small children. But her message, she comes out with the message that, that she doesn't see color, that there is no color, that we're all that there's no such thing as black or brown and that we're all just shades, shades of brown. And I, I have to say that I understand her perspective on that, but I also don't fully agree with it. Um, you know, as somebody who grew up brown in America, I, um, 
I see a lot of um, commonality and I feel a certain um, sense of, of linkage to, to the African-American community. But I also know that to me, those experiences are not comparable. You know, the, I, I'll, I'll, I, I will go out on a limb and, and say what, <laughs> what I think that the conversation you probably didn't want to have, but you know, to, to me, it's important to continue to distinguish black and black and brown Latino, not because those things necessarily have inherent meaning, but because there's history there. There's, there's experiences that cannot be ignored, you know, and that changes how it is that, that we interact in society and how people are perceived in society. So I think, I, I think it's a little bit naive to pretend that those, that those differences in history and experience don't exist, you know, from a biological perspective, we can have a whole other conversation, but, you know, from a social perspective, those things still have meaning, but, you know, as I keep, as I've said a few times, you know, there's so much more that unites us. There's so much value in having these conversations that focus on this, you know, the commonality of outcomes that we have, our abilities to uh, thrive as individuals and to have a society of thriving individuals that makes a more cohesive and, and more democratic, uh, stronger community, state, nation, world very well, very well said very well said ultimately a lot of the things that you said uh has a extraordinary value when it comes down to it and regardless of what you think in terms of like especially regarding the history of uh black people in america and the current state of affairs and how you think about it the thing that I'll always continue to preach is that we can always strive for better. There is nothing stopping you, even though your starting point may be different, maybe worse off. There's nothing stopping you for continuously trying to succeed and something that we have to continue to kind of instill into people. Something that you brought up earlier is continue having that hope of wanting progression, wanting, uh, you know, continuation of uh, a better life for not only yourself but for your family and ultimately the community and ultimately ultimately america as a whole as it strives to be a better nation because even when we america gets better the hope as the number one country in the world is that the world will get better as a whole so it starts from the individual level and that's how everything starts improving you can't start it from the top level if you're community is uh not as good as it should be ultimately so keeping that hope is very powerful and keeping that hope and continuously having the conversations that you're referring to opening up your perspective and uh trying to be an advocate and pushing certain solutions forward is the key uh, the local level especially is extremely important um to kind of make better change in your community so before we start wrapping up uh would you like to plug anything uh you know final words or anything like that yeah no the more than anything to thank you for this conversation um as i said this is a big part of of my how and how it is that i go about trying to 
to have that conversation with people. So this opportunity is is tremendous. And as I said in the beginning, I, I really, really am thankful for, for this movement that you're creating as well. I think there's a tremendous value there. Um, you can find us on beactchange.com. We have uh, an Instagram page, uh, which is also be.act.change. Uh, you can look me up on, link on LinkedIn. I'm Dr. Paul Rivera. Um, or you can email me at paul at beactchange.com. Um, I am happy to have this conversation. Uh, we have, you know, we do this sort of work with, um, as I mentioned, with individuals, we work with, with corporate teams, with NGOs, um, really helping people find that alignment to their purpose, their mission, their mission and vision in more in the, in the corporate sense. So we do that work. We work globally. We work in multiple languages, you know, so we have lots of opportunity there. And then finally, we have our book, which I've mentioned a couple of times, called Creating Your Limitless Life, uh, which is a little bit of story, uh, something, give you some perspective on, on the immigrant experience, and then really a nice step-by-step -step guide that uh, walks you through all of these things. You know, it's, you can buy paperback, you can buy hardcover, but we've purposely priced the Kindle at 99 cents. Uh, and there's an accompanying workbook that is also 99 cents. And we've done that very specifically thinking about, you know, the, we don't want finances to be a barrier to access to this kind of information that we believe, you know, can really be transformative for the individual. And as you've said, therefore for families and communities as well. So we wanted to make sure that, that, that 99 cent price for the, for the Kindle version made it accessible to anybody who wanted to reach it. Um, so it's out there, look us up, link with us. Let's keep having that conversation. All right. Appreciate it. Uh, you could definitely follow, uh, find all his information, uh, in the description as well as the website on his profile at www.purplepoliticalbreakdown.com. Uh, excellent conversation. Very interesting conversation, uh, from the perspective of the Latino community, a conversation I've yet to have, but it was a good conversation with all that said and we'll continue having these uh conversations and having uh these solutions without political bias which is the theme of the podcast continuously start off very strong next year should be a very interesting year hope you guys enjoyed rated five stars of we'll check it out y'all we got what you need we're all living in apartments condos vans well dude even you can have a studio. A studio in a box. Yes, we can help you with that right here at Blind Knowledge. We work on your budget, and we figure out your measurements. We'll get you the best sound for the best price. Let me know, 877-237-1143, or at blindknowledge.com. Yep.